down. Your love is dead. I got a letter this morning. I say, how you ringing red? Hey everyone, welcome to Poetry Says. I'm Alice, and this week I'm taking you to the deep south, courtesy of Australian poet Alan Wern. It's not every day that you get a chance to speak with a poet who is as accomplished and knowledgeable as Alan is. So I learned a huge amount from this discussion, and I hope that you do as well. Alan has been writing poetry since the 1960s, and since then he's put out four verse collections, a verse novella, two verse novels, and a satire on Melbourne's football called Kicking in Danger. He's also the publisher of Grand Parade Poets, which puts out some fantastic books by some wonderful Australian poets as well. But this conversation is much less about Alan's work and more about one of his contemporaries and poetic touch points, a poet called Frank Stanford, who was from Arkansas and writing in the 60s and 70s. Poetry Foundation describes Stanford as a prolific poet known for his originality and ingenuity. He's been dubbed a swamp rat Rambo by Lorenzo Thomas and one of the great voices of death by Franz Wright. He grew up in Mississippi, Tennessee, and then Arkansas, where he lived for most of his life and wrote many of his powerful poems. So even though Stanford died, he committed suicide at age 30. By then, he'd already authored over 10 books of poetry, including one huge epic called The Battlefield, Where the Moon Says I Love You. And I think to get the most out of this conversation, you're going to need to be convinced a little bit about Frank Stanford. I was pretty quickly convinced by his work as I started reading it in preparation for talking with Alan, and the poem that did it for me was this one. It's called Circle of Lorca. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to read you the one stanza that really got me. It says, When you get lost on the road, you run into the dead who have broken down stones in their throats for 20 centuries. I saw two little crazy boys crying because it was morning. And when morning comes, it comes in the morning and never at night. So the two books that we discuss in this interview are the huge 700-page collected Frank Stanford called What About This? And then there's another book of his letters and drafts and papers, which I got my hands on. And that one's really, really fascinating. It's called Hidden Water. If you're not really that convinced by Stanford, don't worry because this conversation goes in all kinds of other directions. Alan talks about many other poetic touch points of his, John Forbes, Patrick Kavanagh, Ted Berrigan. Um, We talk for a while about James Dickey, Les Murray, Joyce, Browning, the list just goes on. There is so much in this discussion, but you don't need to know who all those poets are to get something out of it, I don't think. It's more about what it is to know your contemporaries only through their work and those poetic roots, as well as those points where you swerve on the poetic path and things change because you just read that one poem and then after that, everything looks really different. So I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and thank you for introducing me to Frank Stanford who is my new literary boyfriend. (laughs) Safely hidden away in a book, not a real person. <laughs> although, although as, as a poet, he comes across as a very real person. He really and, does. And then as, a, as a, ultimately a tragic person, uh, who knows why anyone decides to kill themselves at, at the age of 30. Yeah. Uh, and uh, incredibly prolific poet. I think to talk about uh, how I came across him. A nice little story. I was in New York, um, and a, a place I'd been to a number of times, uh, but I had never been to Brooklyn. Uh, I'd been always based on Manhattan, 
And so I, I didn't cross on the Brooklyn Bridge, I crossed uh, by the subway and I ended up uh, there. We, I later went and saw a production of Ibsen's Ghosts at, at uh, this theatre there, which is a fabulous play, fabulous thing. But I, I went to a bookshop and I saw a very good bookshop, The Green something, I forgot its name. And I saw, what about this, the collected poems of Frank Stanford, some big, hefty, million-page volume. That is uh, hefty. Yes, hefty. over 700 pages yeah. of, uh, who is this? I mean, you know. And it cost a bit. No, it wasn't that I was short of funds, but perhaps the overlap meant that I might have to, once again, raid the credit card. So I... So I have to go away back to Manhattan and think about this. Next day I went back and bought it and have not regretted it. Yeah. So yep. I did that. So I saw that and I see, I see in there somebody born the year I was born. Um, and his career up to the age of 30 or when he, when he uh, in the moment of craziness, um, commit suicide. Do we know anything about that moment uh, from his work? Or? I sort of read somewhere where his wife, I think, found out he was having an affair or something. But hmm. do people normally kill themselves on account of that? Well, he I doesn't don't... seem like the kind of guy to be all that worried about that kind of activity either. Like every, uh, every second poem seems to be... To or into woman. that, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but perhaps this was the one he didn't. I don't know. I, no, it, it does require a a life of Frank Stanford. Yeah. I keep I keep referring to him as Frank in the same way some people refer to Frank O'Hara as Frank. It's interesting. I mean, uh, there there is an equivalent in Australia. There are a number of poets of uh, in their thirties now. Uh, 20s and 30s, who never met John Forbes, who referred to John Forbes as John. It's like that. I mean, um, uh, not everyone can get that, uh, have that kind of intimacy, I, I suppose, that I, I'm sort of saying that about Frank here and Frank O'Hara. A lot of people just talk about Frank, and, and, and you know it's Frank O'Hara. Um, uh, you don't talk about wisdom. Everyone would always say Eliot, um, Auden, yes, or, right. uh, or or even Ezra. They'd always talk about pound or something yeah. like that, yeah. um, or or say the whole name. But to refer to people by their first names, interesting. I think one of the things um, that captured my imagination uh, once I got to know him is that and why I was so pleased I invested in this book, that there were whole piles of things which I think ticked boxes for me. Um, I, I think as, a, as poets or lovers of poetry, you, you've got to keep continually replenishing the, the poets that you, that you read or like or love. I think... You're going to discover new poets, or there may be poets that you've vaguely heard about, and then say, "Okay, I'm going to look at this poet. I really should do this every year, but I don't. But it should be so." And, and one example which I'd heard about was the very fine, very strange—I won't say fine—very strange 19th-century poet Tollens Lovell Beddoes, Englishman also committed suicide. Right. Uh, Beddoes, who's so much better than Edgar Allan Poe, although they seem to inhabit the same kind of world of craziness, but he's so much better than that. I, I went and obtained a volume in which he shares with um, Thomas Hood and Winthrop Mackworth Prayed and, and decided I would just read him. And I'm very glad I did. Another one was... Uh, uh, very fine uh, 20th century uh, Irish poet, Patrick Kavanagh, of whom I was aware, you know, vaguely, I might have read one or two things or been aware of him, but I, 
I, I, um, he dies in 1967 in his 60s. Um, anyhow, I was very glad to read Kavanagh. Mm. Uh, Kavanagh wrote this fabulous large-scale work as a kind of expose of the poverty of um, uh, celibate life on a farm oh, with wow. his farmer and just this thing called the Great Hunger. It's remarkably, it's a big, solid narrative poem. You can see why I like that sort of thing. Yes, yeah. He also wrote this fabulous poem towards the end of his life based on what he perceived as the industry surrounding W.B. Yeats, a poet he doubtless realised was a fine poet, but he, he more or less indicates in this fabulous poem called, I think, W.B. Yeats, I think, uh, there are limits, you know. Wow. And, and basically he hacks into not just Yeats, but the Yeats industry. And then, um, and, uh, yeah, there's also, I think, that discovering new poems, uh, and this is, and I mean, you know, obviously, if you open up a, a magazine or, a, or something like that, there is a new poem there. But there are those new poems that really, that you really discover. And I, I think this discovery element, now that hasn't happened to me often. In 19, John Scott and I and a few others were well aware of the very fine, if somewhat erratic, uh, poet Ted Berrigan, the the uh, the great, he called himself the last beatnik. He uh, wasn't a hippie. Like Frank Stanford was not a hippie. He was, no. was not a hippie. I don't think any hippie poets have ever survived. You know, well, American hippie poets, name me one. Uh, Dreamsfield was a was a hippie, so yeah, well, he survived, I suppose. Buckmaster, maybe. But. Um, Berrigan was not a hippie, he was a kind of, he called himself the last beatnik. And we were aware of, of Berrigan stuff. And then in the paperback bookshop at the top of Burke Street in 1969 or 70, I came across his volume, Many Happy Returns. I thought, oh, Berrigan. And only 700 had been printed and one or two had made it to Australia. And I opened up and, and started to read his fabulous sequence, Tambourine Life. And I said, this is the poem for me. Oh, that's so great when that happens. It is, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. and, you know, I discovered it. Yeah. You know, I discovered that poem. Yeah. This is the poem for me. Mm. Um, in the same way that I, I remember um, um, a, a documentary on Elliot in which Stephen Spender is being interviewed and Spender is talking about how they were that... that Generation were impacted by the wasteland. Right? They're impacted by it, and you, know, you just can't escape it. And he said, It's probably like somebody today, and this is made about 30 or 40 years ago, so it's something like something, somebody today, the, the same reaction that they would have had to how. Right. How and the wasteland. Yes. Now, totally different sort of poems. But not that so different as to be negligible, and 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 it's in the reaction that they, you know that they would have got. Yeah, they kind of echo through. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Decades. Yeah, it? yeah. I mean, tambourine life. I don't think is quite in that. Tambourine life is a much more throwaway sort of comic equivalent at times in it and but it's a great deal of fun and I'm very glad always glad I discovered that I was the first person in Australia to read it yeah I like that so I think coming across um, uh, Frank Stanford reading about his life as much as you can and you uh, not seduced by it but it, it because he's the same age as me I I think that that was an interesting thing. I mean, I think sometimes the life of a, 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 a really great life of a poet sometimes might interfere. I've known, I've known students who, who say, oh, Rambo, what a great life. Oh, I love his poems in translation. If only I could get in touch with Rambo and Lena Rambo. I said, right, what you've got to do is you've got to enroll in French and learn French and read them in the original French. Now, that's not as exciting as going for wines, though. 
is going for him. You know, you, basically what they're saying is I would just like to go and have too many glasses of wine. The truth. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's what's, that's what's behind that is kind yeah. of like this, um, yeah, elevating this lifestyle which has so little to do with the actual work itself. Uh, his life has, but his lifestyle, no. I mean, yeah, I mean, the lifestyle that, you know, any, anyone can be a Rambo. You know, you go down the street and there's half a dozen. You can just pick out they're having a Rambo sort of life at the age of 19 or something. But, you know, are they living, you know, are they writing the Rambo sort of poems? I think that's probably one of the things there that, that ticking boxes that Frank Stamford had... Um, I think, uh, and, and reading certain poems by him, uh, I just keep going back to a number, um, and I'm going to read one now um, uh, called They Were Society People. Uh, I'll read it. Um, and this is one of his more accessible, more, not conventional, but this is set... This is not set in his um, now let's read it first yeah. okay I was a cook in the army so when I got out that's what the VA got me a job doing at this country club I worked there a couple of months and thought I was doing pretty good but there was this one woman who kept complaining about my steaks at dinner parties sometimes They'd make the waiter bring me out and they'd bore me out in front of the other guests. Pretty soon it got to be a joke, kind of regular. It didn't matter how good the dinner was, they had to have their fun. I went to the hospital on my day off and told the doctor what I wanted to do. He gave me some pills and told him to forget it. Well, the next day I went to work planning the party. I had it all laid out. When in walks the woman in charge of the benefit, it was her. She was the hostess. She said for me to change everything she'd plan it all. She ran everybody out of the kitchen but me and started telling me what to do. She said, now I'm going to teach you what I learned in Paris one, one summer. I put a fish in her mouth and tied her up on the cutting table and told her I was going to show her what I learned in Vietnam one year. I fixed a dinner none of her friends will ever forget. Brutal. Whoa. Um, now, knowing where he came from, and for those of you out there, uh, this is a poet, as I said, not a hippie. He is, comes out of the deep south, Arkansas. He does travel a bit in the United States, but he remains true to his deep south roots in the same way that William Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor, Eudori Welty uh, were. Uh, James Dickey, too. Um, he, he comes out of that background and he writes about that background. In the same way, I find myself keeping going back and back to this very city and the suburbs in this very city and writing about them. And it doesn't worry me a bit. I think it worried Frank or that he kept going back and writing about this sort of society that he came out of. This isn't a hippie poem, this thing is. This isn't a poem that you stoned off your face, right? This is a poem that's, you, that's coming out of his sort of crazy imagination. Now, he comes from the Deep South, and obviously, to get the full impact of that, you don't read it in an Australian accent. Mm, true. But it doesn't say read this in a, in a, in a Deep South accent, so I think it, it sounds quite okay in an Australian accent, though some of these other ones may be less so. But that, I don't think, matters, because if one tried, if an Australian tried to read this in a Deep South accent... What a botch that would be. Yeah, it would just sound a little bit cringeworthy. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think um, we had this beaut person at Wollongong, a Scotsman, you know, young Scotsman who did a degree with us, uh, who had this fabulous Scots accent. 
We get him to each each year. We get him to recite some Robbie Burns because you can you can do about one stanza of Robbie Burns, but you need to have the, the full voice of Robbie Burns written for that for that dialect for that accent. Anyhow, he said that Australians imitating Scots sound, he said, like bad Welsh. <laughs> bad Welsh. And I think, you know, we don't want to do that to, to somebody like Frank Stanford. And I, I think this was, was you know, I, I think that poem and, and a number of other ones that uh, are here, uh, 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 I mean, it might be interesting. I mean, it would be interesting... Uh, it would be it would be intriguing, for example, and this is where I think it it, it does it, it, the experiment would be to get somebody from the deep south reading some of the some of Bruce Dawes greatest hits. That right? would be so great. It would be interesting, that wouldn't would it? So See, great. I mean, they mightn't get certain nuances, or they you know, but it would be intriguing to hear it um, I have no idea what somebody from the so if any of you are from the deep south and have heard me read this um, and these other ones of Frank Stanford let me know whether what it sounds like I realize it doesn't I'm not trying to imitate his voice but, but it doesn't ask here to imitate his voice the only thing here that uh, he, um, uh, uh, that indicates the United States really in this, is VA, Veterans Administration, um, uh, uh, whereas in Australia it would be DVA, Department of Veterans Affairs. Yep. Uh, uh, yeah. Because it could be a Vietnam vet in Australia. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, a country club, yeah, those sorts of people, yes. Um, <laughs> anyhow, yeah. yeah. It's fascinating. Um, I wanted to um, read this little line of his from the Hidden Water book. Yep. It's a letter to... He used to live in a monastery, apparently, for a short time, and he writes to Father Jerome and says, he's doing that kind of lamenting that all poets do, I don't have, I don't have time to do half what I want to do now I'm running a crew of surveyors, because he was a land surveyor. Like a few other poet surveyors before me, Whitman, Thoreau, etc., the combinations of the naturals and the arts work together well. Only infernal business gets in the way. But I don't know. I mean, I'm looking at the 700-page volume and then the kind of collected papers, and I'm thinking, Frank, nothing was getting in your way. Like, <laughs> no, no, that's I agree. Um, uh, the the fecundity, and in that fecundity, the uh, the fact that he is consistent in in it is something that I applaud. Now, I'm not saying every one of these poems is 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 a world beater. Um, and in a sense, he doesn't break any really new technical ground. Or he doesn't push himself in directions like Auden did, that Auden would try to solve a, set himself a problem of technique and then try to solve it. This guy basically writes, the poems are pretty much in the same sort of poem throughout. And there's nothing wrong with that. Some people, capable uh, uh, Emily Dickinson did the same sort of thing. Um, some people can do it and get away with it or can succeed with it, others can't. Um, uh, so I, I don't... Uh, uh, I, I don't think that... Uh, but, but perhaps Frank just thought... Um, you know, I believe he... When he writes this thing to the... the, the he, w he went to the, the monastery when he... I think he was sent there as a boarding school. Oh, right. Yeah, and, and uh, uh, a Catholic in the Deep South. Flannery O'Connor was a Catholic in the Deep South. Uh, I've no idea how much Roman Catholicism is in this, in his work, uh, uh, or can be, you know. This, um, but I think, I don't think he protests too much. I do think he believes he can't, if only I could do more. Uh, I think uh, everyone always feels that way. 
everyone who's trying to write. I'd, I'd never met a writer who said, yeah, I'm really happy with how much I've done and uh, yeah, I just have heaps of time. You know, like I've never met anyone who'd said that. There would be some people, some people though I think go a bit overboard with that attitude. I think that, that thing there might be a bit overboard, but he still believes in it. Yeah, he believes in um, it, yeah. I know that Benjamin Freighter, um, uh, the, the wonderful poet who then died young, uh, in his late twenties, who didn't write a huge amount really. Now, of course, he was hampered in many respects by his schizophrenia, and uh, and okay, he takes the medication, and then the medication medication stops him from writing, or rather, he feels it does, or something, and he gets frustrated. I tried to tell him, I said, you don't have to worry, just read some poems, you know. Take a year off, it doesn't mean, oh, I've got to write, I've got to write. Um, and he meant it. And I think in, 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 in a less frantic way, Frank, to father, whatever he is, yep. Jerome, yep. Um, is, is, is saying the same sort of thing. I mean, he's, he's trying to, um, uh, he would really, he must have been bursting out with whole piles of, things inside his head that he couldn't get down. Um, um, I like the, I mean, I like the idea of him being a land surveyor. I was uh, talking to Gig Ryan yesterday about it. And we, I mean, we understand that there is this, uh, people go to university and learn to become a poet, become a poet sort of element, but we do like the people uh, who aren't, we do appreciate those who do have other occupations. Uh, and before I went, became an academic, I did have other occupations, but some dead end. The paperback bookshop that I mentioned before, I worked there, but long after I discovered Tambourine Life. Um, and I do like the idea of him being a handsome owner, so I like Wallace Stevens being the insurance company executive or. Um, or, or things like that. I think it's it's um, uh, that's a corrective in a way to the kind of um, people who want to be Rambo. No, no, they don't have to be Rambo. You can be a land surveyor. You can go and work in Bunnings. Why don't you go and work in Bunnings, young man? Write your poems on the side. Young woman. <laughs> you know? Well, in a way, the dead end jobs are the ones that allow your brain to continue to work while you're doing the thing that makes you money. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for jobs uh, that aren't necessarily asking you to climb a ladder. Or and yet, I, I see that. I had a number of years in the Commonwealth Public Service and three different stints. The whole working away from the bottom up sort of thing had a kind of romance to it, which in the end, looking back on it, was a fraud. That doesn't mean to say I didn't have some great terms of Commonwealth Public Service, but it really was a death. But Frank Stanford working with these uh, people out and being a land surveyor is using his brain. That's true. Yeah. And Wallace Stevens being the insurance company executive, or Jeffrey Lehman being a tax lawyer, um, are using their brains in other in other directions. Yeah. Um, and. Um, uh, which means perhaps that when they click off from that thing and go to poetry, they can come to it fresh. Yeah. And, you know, they're also earning a bit of money. And their, um, uh, and their brain, I never know whether it's the right side or the left side. The uh, uh, right side is the one that's doing, apparently doing the creative stuff. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. The, left, the left side. Uh, is in control mm -hmm. and the right side's sort of there. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose we'll never know just 
whether or not this man, Frank Stanford, really um, got on top of things um, and was able to solve that conundrum. I, I don't know. Um, just looking for some other ones here. Yeah, great. Uh, I did make a list some time ago. What's this? Let's have a look. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of things set by rivers and water. You know, water's always there. The moon yeah. is often there. Yeah. And it always sounds as if he's speaking. It's always night. I feel like, or it's often night. Yes. And he, it sounds as if he's speaking from inside his dreamscape yes. a lot of the time. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, the surreal. I mean, I don't think the the, um, the they were society people that I read before is a is a surreal, dreamlike one. Although you can imagine it almost like that. Um, Sticking uh, the fish in the mouth. Yes, uh, but I don't think it's written in a, in a surreal no, way. No. Um, um, and I like the way it just came in, so, <laughs> which is sort of thing that happens in a dream, I suppose. True. Suddenly, you're going to adjust to this thing. Uh, Yet yeah, suddenly we played her up. Yeah, but Blue Yodel. Um, the girl in the black sweater lives alone with her child on a small body of water and is not married. She is building a cabin back in the woods. But for now, she and the boy live in a houseboat that lists off into the evening. When you go down the goddamn roads to her place, you know you've been somewhere. But she is always gone. When you get there, the only place she frequents is a tavern in the cove. What they call it is the quiet night. In the afternoons, I went there, wanting to get a look at her. No way. So I took to drinking later than I should. And the man who claimed he ran the dive told me the tale of the girl in the black sweater. It was late when I left. He helped me in my boat and I rode the liquor out of my blood all night. Going home, the moon was letting out its mooring rope. When I passed them asleep in their boathouse, her sweater dried in the air like a black flag. Oh. He knows how to balance the surreal with, you know, this could actually have happened, but it doesn't sound, it doesn't feel like It doesn't feel quite right. No, no. The, what is it? The moon is letting out its mooring rope. That's uh, 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 going home. The moon was letting out its mooring rope. That's what? yeah. Uh, see, there's a lot of what I, I, a thing I like is that uh, one of the things I like is uh, in something and a lot of these things is that there is. Some, there's, some, there's something of sex hanging around. Definitely. But yeah. he evokes it, or he lets you imagine it. He's yeah. not going to tell you what's inside his mind, nope. but you know something could well be, and if it's not in his mind, it's in your mind. It's in mind. your mind, <laughs> which, I, which, I, which is something I like doing myself. I once, in my the, the, the nightmares, I think I once had this over-the-top piece of eroticism, of course, for want of a better term. And then I suddenly thought, hang on, I'm intruding on this couple. I don't want it, you know, <laughs> perfect on this couple. You know, this is wrong. Just sort of lay it flat. And I think, I think that's something... Um, it was a good... Exp no, it wasn't a good experiment. It was an experiment that failed. I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I can't... I can't I can't do that. I can hint at it. And then the only problem with writing, uh, with me, uh, from memory, no, no, there are times when I can do it. There is my poem um, about the about the businessman and the escort in the hotel room at three in the morning, uh, one called um, uh, Bad Habits, based mm -hmm. on that song, Bad Habits. Yeah. And, uh, but that's not about sex, although it's sort of it's moderately graphic, but it's about 
what the fuck are we doing here? Yeah. Or, you know, that kind of, you know, she's, she's brought over some drugs and he's got to, she had off on a plane in about three hours to America. Um, it's not about sex. It's about, you know, the same. It's, not about, it's about relationships and about this daggy portrait of this rather, well, he's probably a nice enough sort of guy. But, you know, why did he get himself into this situation? Couldn't he have sort of gone to a brothel at, you know, <laughs> nine o'clock instead of inviting <laughs> the escort at three? Um, yeah, it'd be nice to have uh, seen what uh, someone like that, uh, Frank uh, Stanford, might have made of that situation. Um, and, and certainly, uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think he's got better things to do than... Um, wallow around in, in the erotic. Yeah, and but it, it's not denying it. No, That's what no, you're talking about no, with your work right. as well. It's yeah, it's, yeah. it's allowing for presence of sex on the on just off the page. Yeah, or yeah. In, in 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 the head of mm. with enough of a hint. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Certainly in that one, he, he certainly she certainly attracted him, this uh, woman in the boat. Mm. She certainly uh, you know, it just he won't. He, 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 you know, he just might have liked to have said hi or something. Well, you can, yeah, you can kind of be. You can take it as far as you want yes. in your own mind. You're yeah. in control of that, which I yeah. really like. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I wanted to read you this other little section. Yes. And I realise I'm spoiling bits of the book here for no, you, but this is no, no. <laughs> this is my favourite section of one of his letters to Alan Dugan. He says, and I think this gives a good sense of who his contemporaries were as well, he says, the editor of The Nation sent my name to some guy and he gave me a scholarship to a poetry festival. These are some of the people who are going to be there. Berrigan, Blackburn, Bly, Corso, Creeley, Hall, Kelly, Logan, McClough, Oppenheimer, Rothenberg, Bastias, Wachowski, etc. I haven't read much by these people. I think they might become some of those poets who school up on theories and shit like minnows. Some of the stuff I have read by some of them I like. I doubt if I'll be able to go anyway since I'm really doing a lot of writing and thinking. Besides, I'm broke. Do you think it would be worthwhile? <laughs> so he's kind of saying like, oh, I've got this scholarship to go there, but I don't really want to. It's kind of that like... The, this whole question of like the scene, you know, and is he going to step into the scene? And oh, I could imagine uh, um, being at that age, at that time, with that uh, that um, uh, generation, which is uh, which uh, are born in the twenties and thirties, um, and those United States poets. Uh, I could imagine him uh, thinking that. Um, And it, it might just be, it might be, um, he might just have a bit of false modesty. Sort of saying, yeah, oh, I feel like me, it's a bit false know? modesty. Yeah, yeah little me. Kind of little me, but also, I don't want to get mixed up with all that because they're the people who school up on theories and shit like minnows. They don't. They don't. Uh, School up on the I know, I know, right? Like no, Berrigan didn't. Blackburn certainly didn't. Bly probably. Creeley wouldn't know a theory if he fell over one. <laughs> Creeley, well, maybe Hall, the, 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 uh, Oppenheim and Rothenberg, perhaps Van Dias, I don't know, but Diane Mikowski. So some of those people, Blackburn's a beautiful, poor Blackburn. Uh, and that's very early on because Blackburn dies in about 1971, I think. He, he died mm. quite young. Mm. And he's a beaut poet. Berrigan, no, or Berrigan uh, had, had a university education, but Berrigan was basically, as we said, in Corso. No, 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 it's a bit, the other ones perhaps, but I, and shit like minnows. Um, such a weird phrase. Um, but I feel like it speaks to kind of a fear, like he's only 20 or so yeah. years older. Oh, point. yes. So he's, I think it's, yeah, it's just that insecurity, I suppose, more than anything. It is, yeah, it's a sort of insecurity. Um, who was that? Oh, who was it? 
Oh no, I was speaking with an insecurity, insecurity. Um, I was speaking uh, with Gig Ryan about certain of our contemporaries, perhaps slightly younger, who continue to enter poetry competitions. No, no, you're not. You're not. You, you are the in this. You're not in that category. No, because, I, I doubt it. <laughs> no, no, uh, because this is people in their forty or fifties and sixty who continue to enter poetry competitions. Some of them are big name poets who enter poetry competitions, and we were talking about one in particular. And I was trying to think of the word. And this poet, he is man, it's his insecurity. Mm. And I was trying to think of the term yesterday mm. that uh, this, this uh, when I was talking to Gig on the phone, and we often uh, talk on the phone, uh, if only people could record it and they could publish it later on. <laughs> yeah, later on, much later on. <laughs> Except they haven't, and Gig wouldn't allow it, and probably I wouldn't either. No, fair enough. hilarious. But um, we're thinking about the, uh, this kind of thing that people with, with huge reputations still enter. No, not like their books being entered, which is a, which I applaud, you know. But enter individual poems into poetry competitions, and they've got this wonderful career, people being acclaimed, you know, etc. And it's insecurity. They've basically got this insecurity. That they've got to prove themselves competitively as well, and not just in books, but individual poems. Um, and I think that's, in a sense, uh, he's uh, in a sense Frank Stanford's a bit insecure there. Uh, he's asking this older poet, oh, "Do you think I should?" Yeah. And the older poet, and he's probably wanting the answer. Sure, Frank, you can mix it with anybody. Or, you know. No, you don't have to go. Yeah, You're yeah. good enough already. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. I, mean, I, yeah, I like that. I mean, I, I, one of the things that, uh, as I've said, it attracted me about him is, is the fact that we are contemporaries. I mean, in, in this book, there is uh, examples of a, a prize. He won a poetry prize when he was in grade three or grade four at primary school. Mm. I look back and I think, you know, when he's winning that prize, you know, at that in, on that day, you know, um, well, I would have been in Mrs. So-and-so's class, Mrs. Sampson's class, say it's grade five, but Mrs. Sampson's class, and we would have been, you know, <laughs> all this and something like that. And, and I like the idea of that, just seeing a parallel there. Um, I think one of the things is that um, we... There's nothing... I, I know that I've met a number of um, uh, very uh, of my contemporaries uh, from overseas, but not that many. We met August Kleinsala, a poet I, I, I urge everybody to read, um, who was uh, came out to Australia in uh, to a Melbourne Writers Festival. They had Ashbury all lined up, but Ashbury pulled out the last moment, although he came some years later. And Augie came 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 through. Same same generation as Frank. And August came out. He got to know us, and we, we still are in contact with him and things like that. And I've since come across David Lehman. Um, uh, again, another uh, very fine poet, my contemporary. Who he lives in New York. Uh, He's also a poetry entrepreneur. He, he runs that Best American Poetry series of poems of each year. He's the general editor. <coughs> um, be nice to know. Have this kind of, you know, the same way. It'd be nice to know what was it like. What was your fifth grade like? Or meet a Russian poet, my own age. Never have. You know, oh, the young pioneers, eh? It sounds just like the Boy Scouts. Mm. You know, I mean, it would be nice to have done... Well, we just have not... 
you can go to poetry festivals, as I've been to a couple, and you can meet people like that. But it, 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 we're still cut off in this little bubbles. And I, I don't, I've only met a couple of New Zealand poets. Yeah, right. Own, uh, yeah, I, think, I think that's one thing in this country that we have to sort of look at uh, very carefully as poets is what they have done in New Zealand. I'll tell you one thing that New Zealand didn't have, and it was too perhaps their advantage, was the idiot scandal. Not the poems, but the idiot scandal surrounding Ern Mallet. Yeah. yeah. They didn't have that. They didn't have that. A lot of that, I mean, um, uh, and I think we, we have to, it, 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 this helps me at least find out what somebody else who's my contemporary is doing. It's one of those things that, um, no, I just find it, find it an intriguing thing to sort of contemplate. Here's uh, Frank's thing called um, Getting to Sleep. Two sisters come home for the holidays. There is grace, the meal, and a lot to drink. The youngest boy goes up to change clothes. They are all going out to visit in the next county, all but the two sisters. They curl up near the fire, sipping coffee. The boy comes down the stairs, a towel around him, drying off in front of the fire. He's 14 years old now. The one sister says to the other, after the family leaves, the two sisters climb the stairs to their old room. They undress and climb into the cold feathers of the two iron beds. It is a good moon out and snow. They lie there in the dark, thinking about their girlhood friend, the other farmer's wife, and the farmer, his dark hair, his gloves, the smoke in his clothes, and the rabbit blood under his nails. Under their beds, holding them level and steady, are a few of the books they read long ago. The two sisters lie there in the dark, thinking this night a pianist whose hands they can't see. And the past, in white gloves, like the snow, what they're hearing now, like a man with long sideburns, climbing the pine stairs in sock feet, a man that both of them are in love with. Mm. That's, it's an in, uh, unusually neat ending, I feel like. For um, Although I suppose the one that you read previously with the, the woman getting murdered at the country club has a very definite ending as well. Yeah, yeah. the other one, um, the... the, the the other, the blue yodel, yodel one, then just drifts off yeah, down yeah. the river. I mean, the, the, this stays in the room, it doesn't does, it? Yeah, it does, yeah. Um, uh, lines, yes. Yeah. I, I, I don't think his poems are to a, a definite template, but I think um, something hit me just then. I mean, it, it suddenly hit me, uh, the two or three really great narrative poems, Robert Frost, such as Home Burial and Death of the Hired Man, they're in New England, but I think, you know, this is not, this is in the same kind of uh, world that those two poems and some of the others are out, out by Robert Frost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think all poets uh, should have... Uh, they really do believe this. They all, should, all poets should have those poems that make you want to give up. <laughs> uh, yeah, completely. Um, completely. Well, um, that's kind of what what I try to talk to people about in this podcast is what is that poem that either comforts you or just makes you think, all right, I'm out. Uh -huh. I, I can tell you uh, uh, that. Those two ones are heading in that direction, but I'm willing to sort of back that out against them. Yeah. I do think that uh, given the sort of things I read, write, um, and you go back, well, I can go back to the company founder, whom I call Mr. Jeffrey Chaucer, the company founder, but 
I do. I call him Pat. But I think, uh, given the sort of things I write, there are certain pieces by Browning which enter in that. Uh, my last Duchess, the Bishop orders his tomb, on del Sarto, um, for starters. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I think everyone, I think all people should have that there. Is a, I'm never going to be that good. Um, this doesn't mean to say that there are poems that I'm not going to write like a Shakespeare sonnet or upon Westminster Bridge or like the great metaphysical poets of the of the 17th century. I'm not going to write like them, even though I, I love those sort of poems. But in the in the team I have joined, I believe I've joined a team, there is still the captain on what the captain's doing. <laughs> um, uh, will will it ever? Will you ever get as good as that? I think that that's something um, we have got. On the other hand, there is this other this 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 other um, uh, attitude to have, which I think should also be there. I mean, it's one that I have used to tell students, particularly students who are sort of a, who had a bit of vigor. I won't say arrogance, but had a bit of vigor that, you know, go along to a, a poetry slam, go along to a poetry reading. I'm sure something inside of you will say to yourself, I can do better than that. Yeah, and that's really useful as well, hearing then, stuff that you don't and, like. And, and, then, and, then, and then what? Then they've got to do You've that. You've got to do it. Yeah, they've got, right. to, they've got to do that yeah. thing. I suppose, I mean, we don't, we know that Frank Stanford met Allen Ginsberg and could, and uh, corresponded with Alan Dugan and had poetry friends mm -hmm. and things like that, whether or not he was a big fixture, it doesn't look like he was a big fixture yet on the overall poetry scene. Mm -hmm. um, unlike his, uh, his uh, older uh, compatriot, uh, James Dickey. Now, Dickey uh, is again from the Deep South. Okay. Dickey, Dickey was again very prolific. Dickey was a, early on in his career, he was an insurance, not insurance, in advertising okay. in the Deep South. Not, not like madmen advertising, but probably Deep South advertising. Mm. But he was very much a, a southerner. And in the 1960s, he was kind of, Well, Life magazine had a big feature on him. Around, roughly around the time, the Time magazine had Robert Lowell on the front cover. <laughs> they were seen as kind of poles, one from the north, one from the south. This sort of doesn't, you know, they, they were big charismatic poets. You know, around that time, there's Ginsburg and Frank O'Hara, Ashby's in, in Paris and things like that. But they're, they're big charismatic poets. Uh, James Dickey uh, wrote a novel, which was later made of a film called Deliverance. Um, uh, he writes a lot set in this area of that, things like that. He's very fecund. He's also just... His poetry um, doesn't improve. But there are some beaut poems there. The Shark's Parlour, the performance and things like that. There is a very, he can be a very fine poet. Uh, he's, 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 he's quite tragic in a kind of, he's very similar in a way to Les Murray. Oh, okay. Right. Uh, I, I, I always sort of compare Murray with James Dickey uh, in a sense that um, you would, People would go to the deep south and in the United States, who's your poet? Oh, James Dickey, of course. Mm -hmm. People would come to Australia, who's your poet? Murray. Uh, uh, but he, his, his later works don't live up, I think, to the much earlier stuff. But he was, he was quite extraordinary. And 
um, French. I don't think French Stanford may have met. Don't know, but they inhabit the same world. He's not a protege of him. He's some. He's got his own thing. He doesn't write like Dicky. That's really I, interesting because maybe. I mean, he must. Frank must have been aware of him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think he. I think in one of the um, in this book, in one of the um, uh, interviews, I think he has floated. You know, I oh, mean, okay. yeah, I don't think he see. Uh, perhaps if he had lived, he might have been a rival. But by the time Frank is sort of die, Dicky is his later stuff is. Oh, you're right. I've tried to read his later stuff. He, he is in is very, and it just doesn't work. But some of the early things are really great. He's a beautiful. Actually, came to Australia too in the early days when um, people of that substance came uh, to this country. Um, yeah. Uh, Yes, so there is that. Um, oh. One of the things I think in reading these things aloud is that they, uh, it, it, and having read three of Frank Stanford's poems aloud, is something uh, that um, more than ever convinces me over the following. One thing that I get riled about is the term spoken word poetry. Art spoken word poetry. Are they having a spoken word poetry thing tonight? All poetry is spoken word. All poetry. Even if you're writing it and reading it aloud inside your head, it's all meant to be read aloud. That is the starting off point. Whether it's the rhyme of the ancient mariner, or else it reacts against the notion of spoken word, i.e. visual poetry, concrete poetry, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. I mean, or something like that. But at base level, spoken word is the basis for poetry. Now, it may not be the poetry um, that... You could go down to Burke Street Mall, provide, you know, replace a bad busker and read some of this poetry here, and they would get it. It's not quite in the language they're speaking as they walk around and go into Myers or something, but it's the same, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it is there. All poetry, I've kept on saying, okay, I'll say it again so I can spread the word. All poetry demands, read me aloud. I do believe that. I, you know, I compose reading aloud myself. Uh, even um, even if it's even if it's never read aloud, it is demanding to be read aloud. Okay. Uh, that's the thing I think with these. Hey, it's not easy reading, like as in you know, easy listening, <laughs> right? But it, it 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 was, and some of these other ones are a little bit more difficult to read aloud. And the ones I've chosen were easier to read aloud. His big epic, uh, what's it called again? The battlefield where the moon says I love you. Well, that's this gigantic work mm. of which is only excerpted in his collected poems. It's, it's something I must invest in one day and try to read. It goes on forever, apparently. But that and that is not the easiest uh, thing to read. In the, in the same, I suppose that the Molly Bloom monologue. Well, it's probably the uh, Molly Bloom monologue isn't all that difficult to read. I remember when I uh, see. Dare I say it as a 16 year old? Was I 17? Everyone does something precocious at that age. They kick 10 goals for the footy team or read Ulysses. Well, I wrote Ulysses. I read Ulysses and write it. I read, <laughs> I read Ulysses. It's very precocious to have written it. And I read it and I thought, oh, this Molly Bloom, I heard about this one. And I got to it at the end and I went, oh, good. Just read it. No, oh, that's good. So it was well done. It was very well done. It was uh, Joyce was able to sort of realise that you're going to have to read it, and um, he had to make it simple but not simplistic, and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I feel like reading Frank Stanford and reading your work—that's where the Venn diagrams do overlap because 
your work basically I don't think sounds anything like Stanford's but that ability to reflect the language of the people walking into Maya or the land surveyors is is very much there um, yeah and it's not but it's not as if you've just transcribed you know oh, no, huge no, no, craft no. behind it I agree. In fact, I think one of my lesser um, aspects is that sometimes I allow my delight in syntactical experiment to override the language of speech. I mean, it was pointed out to me in my next book, uh, which is coming out later in the year, These Things Are Real. A, That's a, a great title. You know where it comes from? No. Urn Mallee. Oh. <laughs> it's an Urn Mallee. It's, it's a line from Urn Mallee. There you go. Um, in any event, um, it was pointed out to me by either my publisher, there were certain sections that he felt that the syntax just was a bit, it just impeding thing. And either you were correct. <laughs> Admittedly, admittedly, in 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 a large in, in something which is meant to be read, uh, something which is it's something which you want the reader to be challenged, but not that challenge that they had to wade through. This, this, this syntax, right? I yeah. mean, I, th I think that there is that. I mean, there would be poets. Uh, he, 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 he could have gone up to Gerard Manley Hopkins and said the same thing, and Hopkins would have said, so what? Right? I mean, this is not what I'm... Or Dylan Thomas or somebody. You know, but my stuff coming out of it. Or, or Browning at his most um, difficult, uh, in which I, I do think that the better... Palms of Browning's are the ones, uh, uh, well, the ones I can uh, come to grips with, which are still there as poetry. They just uh, uh, they sound like, uh, and I think Frank Stanford. You, it's where speech and poetry just melt, merge together. It's something I try to capture, mm -hmm. and and also I suppose that uh, it, it, I'm not interested in. Uh, the deep south, the United States, not my favourite destination. I once went to Georgia for a week, uh, perhaps it was a bit longer, but it wasn't. It, it, I mean, it's the, if it's the United States, it's uh, New England or Ch uh, Chicago or New York or the West Coast. I once went to Las Vegas, though. We once went to Las Vegas, mm. which is... Interesting. Um, it was it, it, on one level. It's just it's just a big United States town with a lot of casinos. Yeah. In it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I think um, yeah, I think the frustrating thing is that what what this man could have done. I mean, and it's um, and I'm glad that this crowd saw fit. Um, uh, Copper Canyon Press uh, to issue his work. I, I, um, I, I'm, very, I'm pleased for that because I, I um, and the serendipity of just happening to be in the right bookshop at the right time. Exactly. I hadn't decided to have gone to to um, uh, to Brooklyn. I thought now's the time to go to Brooklyn. You've never been to Brooklyn before. Let's have a look. We'll, we'll finish off with one. Um, more by him. I'll see what this one. I put a list of. Okay, it's called Fair Trial. The undertaker went his bail, and the chauffeur lent him a jacket to wear, a sea blue tuxedo. It was all he had that would fit him, and all his friends showed up. Not that they carried any weight in the town, but they came to give him soul support because they knew he didn't have a whore's chance in heaven. 
You can't touch the wife of the law and expect to get away with it. Hell, the paper's bound to be against you. Don't quite know where that's heading. That's, that's what I love about it. It's not heading anywhere. And he just doesn't care. <laughs> that's right, yeah, yeah. He's just not bothered. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So I'm so glad that I know about him now. I'm so glad. Well, I thank you yeah. for, for having me on your, on your program. No worries. Um, and, uh, yeah, remember, um, these things are real. Standing around the bearing ground, I didn't know I loved her until I let her down. Looked like ten thousand standing around the bearing ground. You know I didn't know that I loved until I began to let her down.